Hey, good morning. Hey, if you're new, I'm Charlie, uh, lead pastor here at The Grove, and really glad all of you are here, especially if you're new, really glad that you're here worshiping with us, and we'd love to know that you were here. Um, you can go to thegrovechurch.org slash connect, fill out a little form there, just let us know that you were here, any way we can help you, or after the service, there's a connect desk there, uh, fill out a little form there. We'd just love to know that you're here, any way that we can help you, serve you, please let us know. Uh, we are in a series in the book of Daniel, and there are a lot of familiar stories in the book of Daniel. We looked at one that, you know, that was very famous from Veggie Tales about those guys getting thrown in the fiery furnace, and maybe that's a story, even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with that story. And, um, and, and today, so, so, and we're going to discover today and next week, there's actually a lot of here, a lot of things in Daniel that kind of live in kind of just like normal like phrases and ideas, things that people use. I mean, like next week, we're going to talk about lion, the Daniel in the lion's den. That's an expression that people use. Oh, he got thrown in the lion's den. It comes from the Bible, which then again, just kind of has my brain going about what we kind of just kind of thinking about these different types of expressions. So if you want to be that guy, you know, who actually guy, I, I, you give some of these, you can say that they come from the Bible and you can tell people they're misusing them because they're misusing them. And so I'm going to be that guy for just a hot second, even though I don't really like that guy. Uh, salt of the earth, that's one, comes from the Bible. Actually, Jesus said it and we use it to kind of like, like blue collar people, right? But it really kind of salt of the earth kind of guy, but it really is about us bringing the hope of God to the world. So don't be that guy with that. Actually, don't be that guy at all of them. Anyway, it, David and Goliath, that's, a, I mean, the underdog story. It's not an underdog story, right? I mean, it's David plus God versus Goliath. I mean, David was never the underdog in that, even though it seems like it was. Um, Good Samaritan, uh, that, one's, that one comes from the Bible. It's a story that Jesus told about a guy who, uh, the un, an unlikely person to help someone else out. Um, here's one you shouldn't use in any context, calling someone a Jezebel. That's a real person, real person from the Bible, we use it now, and it's almost like it has a very sexual connotation to it, but it was not that. She was just a cruel, power-hungry, I mean, she, she was vicious. She was vicious. She tormented some of God's uh, prophets. She was, she was unkind. Um, and here's one, and we're coming at this one today. He's seen the writing on the wall, an expression fairly common. People will use it, and it often gets used in the context of Something very, like a sign that is obvious to everyone. Uh, so he saw the handwriting on the wall, so he knew that something, he knew this thing was about to happen. When in fact, this story, when we're done with it, really the writing on the wall part really comes, it's, it's more, got more horror movie qualities to it. It's actually, it was actually terrifying what happened. And we'll also discover, again, that it was not clear. No, when the handwriting came on the wall, no one knew what it meant. And so the, the actual story here um, is a little different than the way that we use it, but it's actually a really powerful story. And it's in line, if you've been here at all over the last few weeks as you're going through the book of Daniel, it's in line with most of these stories. Can we kind of catch up on the history? The Jews have been taken over by the Babylonian kingdom, and it was a brutal Brutal war. Nebuchadnezzar the king was a, a brutal genocidal dictator, and he, he did a lot of damage. But he also took a lot of like, the, the sharpest leaders into exile, into Babylon, really with a re-education brainwashing program designed for them to kind of rid them of all their 
culture, including their God, their diet, their morals and everything, and trying to fully assimilate them into being Babylonians only. And so what happens in all of these stories, and almost kind of almost a little bit on a loop, where something will happen where they are confronted about whether or not they're really going to hold on to God's values or not. We saw it in week one about the diet that God had called them to. Would they stand up? Like last week in the fiery furnace, they were asked to bow down to an idol. Are they going to bow down to that idol or not? And the cycle of the story is they, um, you know, they're confronted, they do what's right, and God provides a rescue for them. But also intermingled with them is a series of stories. It's almost like it's like odd numbers, even numbers. Like it's like we've got this, there's these stories where a, a, a king will have a dream or some vision or something like that and no one can interpret it and Daniel or one of his friends are called in to interpret it, right? And what we've been looking at over the last few weeks is kind of all of this really from Daniel's perspective or Daniel's friends, right? The, the good guys in the story. There's the good guy in the story, the bad guy in the story, which is the king, and then whatever God does. We kind of got these three characters. We're kind of mostly looking at it from Daniel's perspective. I mix it up a little bit today, and we're going to kind of look at all three specifically. All three of them and kind of the roles that they play. Because ultimately in this fight that we continue to see between Daniel and the king, there's a conflict of like, what type of person are we going to be? And how does God respond to both? And so we're going to look at both of them. And, and ultimately there's going to be something or someone you're kind of identifying a little bit more with. And the message for both of them from God is the same. And it's good news or bad news, depending on how you look at it. So we're caught up here in Daniel chapter 5. Um, we've got a new king named Belshazzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had been the king all the way up until this point. And there was kind of this through line with Nebuchadnezzar, where all these things are happening around him, where, you know, where God is showing up big time to support his people. And you can tell that God is really trying to grab his heart. And in 4, which we didn't look at... Um, he gets another dream, kind of another one of these stories. He gets a dream and asks Daniel to come interpret it. And essentially it was, Daniel looks at him and says, hey, here's what God's decided, that you've been way too prideful. He's been trying to get your attention. It's not working. So he's essentially, this is a paraphrase, he's essentially going to turn you into a cow where you're going to go crazy and you're going to just hang out in the, in the fields and eat grass like a cow for a few years. Which, I mean, can you, I'm just, I just, I just think about Daniel delivering that message. Okay, what's, what was the message? Well, the message is God's turning you into a cow. So big deal. And like, like you got this crazy genocidal maniac and this is what you're telling him. And it turns out, I mean, he says that Nebuchadnezzar's out there on the roof of his palace. He's like, man, this is great. I'm great. I'm rich. I'm powerful. Everything's great. Everybody should worship me. I'm the man. Boom, cow time. And, 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 and that, and that exa- happens exactly what it does. And then after a long time, it says... Somehow in his cow brain, he was just like, it's God. It, it's, God not, it's God, not me. And we see kind of an act of true repentance from him, right? And so all along, we think this story is primarily about these guys standing up for their faith when really there's this other story about what God is doing in the heart of this king. Well, now we've got a new king. We'll see it in very, the very first verse of Daniel chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. 
While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So make sure we kind of, again, we understand the history. We've got this guy, Belshazzar. And it describes him here, the trans, word is translated as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. That's actually, it's actually, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really that he's, Nebuchadnezzar is his father. Really, the word is there is predecessor. We translate it father in this thing, but it's not a great translation. I'll tell you why, because this guy, Belshazzar, was not actually Nebuchadnezzar's like, literal son. You look into the history of it, and what happens after Nebuchadnezzar becomes king is wild. Um, he dies and it's complete chaos. I mean, he was this strong man holding the whole thing together. And then like, who gets to succeed him? And this person was king for a while. This person was king for a while. I mean, it's like it's all this political intrigue, assassinations, exiles, whatever, all these things. And finally, after a few years, this guy Belshazzar becomes king. And he declares himself that he is Nebuchadnezzar's son. And he absolutely is not. But he, he, he convinces a lot of people that they were, even to the point where we'll see a little bit later, where Nebuchadnezzar's wife refers to him as, the, as your father, Nebuchadnezzar. She plays in on it. This guy has become king through murder, deceit, and, and, just, and, and control to where he's got everybody acting. He's got everybody convinced he's Nebuchadnezzar's son when he's not. And to the point to where even the king mother, the queen mother is scared to death of him and is playing along with the lie. And so what do we have here with him? This guy who is ruling now out of fear and deception and murder. He's celebrating. He's having this huge party. And in this huge party, he says, let's go and get the goblets that we took from the God of Jerusalem. Now, what this God of Jerusalem, the God of the Jews, had done in the life of Nebuchadnezzar was well known by everyone. And this God had shown himself big. I mean, these are kind of kingdom-shaking events that had happened over the last few years. He says, go get me the goblets from that so-called God's temple. And we're going to drink. And we're going to celebrate while drinking out of these goblets. We're going to praise the God of gold and the God of silver God of iron, the God of clay. We're going to celebrate all of these gods. This is who this guy is. In four verses, when you really understand what has happened behind the scenes and in these four verses, Daniel could not be doing a better job of portraying what kind of guy this was. As bad as, we, as, bad as Nebuchadnezzar was in Daniel chapter 1, we've got this guy who was that and maybe even more so. And we describe him this way. We have this first character, the king who is both prideful and rebellious. Now flash back to a couple of minutes ago and I said, hey, we're going to see Daniel, we're going to see this king, compare and contrast, and you're going to connect and identify with one or the other. And now you're sitting there thinking, bro, I'm not sure what you think about me. How what you think about me, but like, I'm, I wouldn't, I've, I've, I've never got, I've not achieved any power by murder. I'm not trying to convince somebody I'm somebody I'm not. And I've never drunken out of God's goblet since worshiped an idol by doing it. 
I get it. Whatever he is, is dialed up to 11, right? He is, he is just well beyond. And hopefully we will never, I can't imagine anyone ever being in any position anywhere close to this, where the level of arrogance and pride and idolatry against God would be this strong. But I think it is often, and I think it is important for us to look at kind of these, these, these pictures of people that are almost caricatures of real people. He's a real person, and he really did these things. But they, they, they're, 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 they're so wild that these, that these character traits that, that are there, they, they just scream so much. Rather than being dismissive of it and say, well, I'm not as evil as that, he didn't, he didn't start out that way. What is the core? What is going on with him? How did he get to this place? And in his core, again, we see this pride, this rebelliousness, this idolatry, this arrogance that he has. That just like Nebuchadnezzar did in the the chapter before, as he's looking out over his kingdom and all that he had, and begins to look and says he's going to celebrate himself. We see him doing the same thing. Let's celebrate me. And in the process, he is literally mocking God. The question for us is, is when you celebrate, when you think about what you've done, when you think about what you've accomplished, when you think about what you have, who do you celebrate? Do you celebrate you? Look at what I did. Look at what I have. Look at how great and wonderful I am. We may not be literally mocking God, but it's there. When we do not take the time to really recognize that really it's not me, it's not about me, it's not about what I've accomplished, it's not about what I've done, it is about a good and gracious God and what he has done in and for We talked about this last month in our money series, that God essentially everything belongs to him and what we have comes from him and all of the good things that we have come from him. And we celebrate and acknowledge that. And so we ask this question, right? Who gets the credit when things go well? What is the core? Is there, what, is there, is there the arrogance and pride there? And I harp on this because I think this is just something that I've battled with, I, I would say, my whole adult life. But I don't know that that takes it far back enough. Like I've always just kind of like, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I had this thought, these these drives in the back. I'm, I'm smarter than you. I'm, I'm better than you. And just this, this arrogance and pride that's there. And as I think I like, you know, oh, it's now a good time to tell a story. It was, it was no challenge to figure out the story. The challenge was which one am I going to tell you? So I'll just tell you this one. It's come from my college life. And then I'm making that transition from kid to adult. I was involved in this college ministry and they had these summer projects and I went down my first summer as a participant. So I've got this guy who's, who's my small group leader. And I thought I was smarter than him, better than him, knew the Bible better than him, was a better leader than him. And I was, I'm sure I was just a pain to him the entire summer. And the, and the guy who was mentoring me, he came down to visit the project. And all, that's all I could talk about. I was like, how, 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 how you pick him? How you pick him to be the leader? How you pick him? You should pick me. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know anything. I'm under there. And he's trying to calm me down. The next year, I go back as a team leader. And to kind of you know the structure here, because this is when they finally, they finally figured some things out, right? There's participants and there's small group leaders, and then there's team leaders who are over these small group leaders. So I got the double promotion, which is really smart for them, right? They finally recognize where real leadership is, right? So now I'm a team leader, but 
there's a student project director. And it will surprise you to know that he also was an idiot. <laughs> and was not a very good leader and didn't know what he was doing. It was embarrassing. Like, it was just ridiculous. And so my mentor comes down again. He's asking how the summer's going. And I'm like, and I just go off. This guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. I can't believe he picked him to be the leader. Da, da, da. And he says, you know, I remember having this conversation with you last summer. And I'm like, yeah, we did. He's like, this seems to be like a, like a pattern. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, it is a pattern. I'm glad we're finally connecting the dots. You guys don't recognize greatness. And you're terrible at picking leaders. And in hindsight, maybe, maybe, just maybe, he was trying to get me to connect different dots. So I graduate, I come on staff with this ministry, and the first guy who oversees me, he just, you know, he'd be surprised, you know, he just, he just couldn't get things right. He didn't understand. He didn't understand kind of what I was doing and the brilliance of it. So I got a different, after a couple of years, he, he went to do something else, I got another guy, and it's the same, same, same kind of deal. I mean, like, what is wrong with this guy? And you'll be proud to know that eventually, after five or six rounds of this from the, year, from the ages of 20 to 27, it finally hit me. What if, bro, what if it's you? All of these guys are very different in their leadership styles. Some very controlling, some very hands-off, some like this, some like this. And it doesn't matter who it is, it's you. It is your arrogance, it is your pride, it is you that is the problem. And I think it was very often we need to take a step back and look at our own hearts and our own lives and say, I think it's me. It is my self-centeredness, this is my pride, it is my lack of humility before God and other people that in fact is causing a lot of problems for me in my life. And, it, and, and, that, and that began a, a, a real introspective journey for me that I really have been on for the last 20 plus years of just figuring out what does it really mean to be humble, to acknowledge God first, to trust and empower and value and believe in the people around me rather than just being consumed by me. And again, we see this on steroids here with King Belshazzar. So what happens then? Verse 5, he's having his little idol celebrating in God's goblet's party. Verse 5, and suddenly... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Another expression that you didn't know that came from the Bible. So scared his knees were knocking. You know, you see it in the cartoons. Ooh, so, right? It, it literally happened to this dude. Can you imagine? I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, he was a little power hungry, maybe even probably a little bit drunk. And then all of a sudden, this hand emerges. And you're probably telling yourself at first, he's like, that's weird. And then all of a sudden, you say, wait, are y'all seeing that too? And then all of a sudden, it starts writing. And it says he's scared to death. He turns pale. His knees start knocking. He is overwhelmed that this hand is writing. And it is writing in a language that no one understands. And he is... T- rightly terrified. 
If you feel like, well, this is kind of like a cute little story that lives in Bible land. Well, like, but what if it, what if, like, no, this is for real. Like, this is for real happened. Can you imagine it happened for real to you? You are celebrating. You're having this party about how great you are. And all of a sudden, this hand comes out of nowhere and starts writing. And you last around, what does that say? What language is that? And no one knows. And no matter who they bring, they don't know. They can't figure it out. So Nebuchadnezzar's wife, the queen mother, and again, playing along with his deception, says, yo, there's this guy that used to help out your father a lot. Um, his name's Daniel, and he used to be able to help him figure things out like this. You bring him in. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? Daniel says, Yes. And he says, If you will help me here, I will give you all this wealth. I'll give you all this power, and I'll, I'll promote you to all these things. Daniel's response, verse 17 Then Daniel answered the king, you keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So in complete contrast to the king who is prideful and rebellious, we have Daniel who continues to be humble and faithful. We got Daniel who is incredibly humble and faithful. And like we find ourselves, this is the third time in five chapters that this almost exact story has happened. A king has a vision, a dream. There's now literal handwriting on a wall that some mysterious hand put on there. I don't know what this means. God gives a very specific message that the king cannot understand or comprehend. And Daniel comes in, asks for his help, and Daniel gives help. And there's a lot of humility, a lot of faithfulness, a lot of, I mean, just a really amazing heart that Daniel has here. I mean, you say, I mean, he, he did it because if he, if he hadn't, he would have, he would have died. I mean, reality of it is, man, you, you've got, you've got these, the, the worst people that you can possibly imagine that are coming up here, continuing to make this demand of him. And I mean, Daniel could have, there's any number of things there. Daniel's like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. He could have, he could have lied and say, I don't even know. He could have said, sure, and then just made something up. But Daniel continues to show faithfulness in the face of the worst people. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is probably the most, one of the most, if not number one, one of the most powerful people on the planet at the time, and also one of its cruelest. Probably one of the most powerful and cruel people of that entire era. And Daniel continues to faithfully, I, sure, I will help you. He walks into this scene. Daniel, man, he would have known. He's like, those are, those are God's goblets. You brought them out here for, for. He said, I'll make you rich if you'll just help me. He's like, keep your, keep your wealth. But I will gladly help you. I'm, I'm blown away by it. And I just imagine like having this now happen to him for a third time. And now with a second king. What's like, what, like, what's his attitude? Like what, what's, what's his attitude here? You think, well, it was probably pretty good. I mean, he kept getting all these promotions. He kept getting all this money. He was actually very wealthy and very powerful in that kingdom. I'm like, sure, 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 sure. He had it all, didn't he? And I'm going to use this phrase very specifically. It is as if Daniel had won the lottery. And I use that specifically because it's one of those things where you have all the money in the world. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, why that's not a positive thing to say that he won the lottery, then you should just Google it sometime. 
There's plenty of documentaries that are on this, on this topic about people who have won massive amounts of money and by every measure in their life other than wealth, they would describe their life as significantly worse. He's a, he's a prisoner. He doesn't have power. He's on, he's, he's on a knife's edge every day of his life of being murdered, executed for just showing a little too much faithfulness to God. It's already had a couple of times and we'll come back again next week with Daniel in the lion's den. Who he is is offensive to them. And he's still in the middle of a brainwashing program. These people have done nothing regardless of his supposed status and wealth. I mean, he's been in exile. He's seen friends and family members executed. And he continues every day to show up and say, I will do and be who God has called me to. It's interesting, I mean, it just even this morning, it just popped into my head just thinking about my dad, who every day worked as a, a tax accountant for a company in South Arkansas. And every day of those 32 years, he didn't like one of those, he didn't like one of those days. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't like his job, he didn't like the company, and he, he didn't like South Arkansas. And um, he never got promoted. And he would say, I just because I, I didn't want to play that game. It was a game. I didn't like the game. I didn't like the way he had to act. He had to be somebody different. I didn't want to be somebody different. And so it got passed over a lot. And ultimately, they offered him early retirement, I believe at the age of 56. And he was just like, done. And um, but then they said, hey, we need you to keep you around and help you train the new people. I was like, yeah, but I'm never wearing a tie again, which was him not going to work in a tie was like a glorious year for him. And um, then he's like, no, we need to just stay a little bit longer. And he said, well, you're going to have to pay me this. Well, you're going to have to pay me this. And then eventually he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. So we just moved to Branson. And, and then they kept bringing him back. And he kept making his, his demands to come back for a few days. Just outrageous. And then ultimately, in their cost-saving measure, it took two and a half men to replace him. And I can't imagine. I can't imagine the disappointment the unfairness of it. Because I think we associate, we associate faithfulness. We associate faithfulness with prosperity. And on the surface, it may have looked like that with Daniel. And there's some ways, I mean, my dad did prosper. He had, a, he had a family and he had a good life. But being faithful, man, it's, it's often, it's often it's just work. Like what's even happening? Like it just, like Why? Why, why, that, why, why this cycle? Why does this keep happening? And again, he's about to get thrown into a pit with a lion, a group of lions just next week. Probably not literally a week for him, but you get the point. <laughs> he's faithful. He's humble. And so again, he's describing Nebuchadnezzar. He says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, he was like this. He kept being rebellious but he finally repented and understand that the God of the universe is God. But you're not like that, verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And then he says, I'm, I'll tell you what, these, what, what this says. Here's what these words mean, verse 26. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. 
<coughs> Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, David was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Again, he gives this terrible guy the worst possible message. And again, it seems like he gets rewarded for it, which, which he does, which is God showing up for him again. Again, it doesn't mean his life's going to be great, that everything's going to be perfect again, because as we'll see here, verse 30, that very night... Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So we got this guy, the king Belshazzar, I mean, just arrogant, prideful, rebellious. We've got Daniel, who continues to be humble and faithful. And ultimately, we've got God. This is the one who sorts it all out. Whatever injustice there are is in the world, whatever pride, whatever arrogance, whatever idolatry, whatever is going on, people in rebellion against God, whatever it is, God's going to sort it out. And that's good news or bad news, depending on which one of these characters you're kind of leaning towards. Again, put aside kind of the exaggerated, not that they're not real, but just kind of the the, the bigness of this king's particular problems, we again, we still at that core, we still have some of these same problems. Arrogance, pride, a lack of recognition of God's real prominence in my own life. God's gonna sort that out. But also those of us who remain to be faithful and humble and continue to acknowledge God's proper place in my life, to give him the honor that he deserves, to put him at the top of my heart and in my life. Even if it feels like it's not working. Again, because we just have this thing. It's like, if I do the right thing, a good thing will necessarily happen to me. It will, but later. Because God is the one. He is going to sort it out. Because maybe, just maybe, just like with Nebuchadnezzar, he's letting some evil people prosper. He's letting the people who aren't doing it right seemingly prosper because he's after their heart desperately like he was with Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe he is using your faithfulness in the midst of troubling circumstances to wake up people around you. And it may feel like faithfulness is not rewarded. And people who are playing the game, they are being rewarded. I'm telling you, God's going to work it out. His prosperity, His blessing, His love for you, it will come. And Daniel, 2,500 years later, is no longer lonely. He's no longer afraid. He's no longer trying to be indoctrinated in someone who will rid himself of God, who can just rid the idea of God out of his life. He has lived in peace and in the favor and in the joy and the blessing of God for 2,500 years. And we need to put our heart and our faith and our trust there. That in this life and most definitely the next, God is the one that's going to work it out. I don't have to compromise and I don't have to take matters into my own hand. I can trust in a God who loves me 
and will reward my faithfulness. So let's cast off the pride. Let's cast off the arrogance. Cast off the idolatry. And with our whole heart say, I humbly choose to be faithful to a God who has given me everything and trust and believe that that faithfulness will be rewarded by the God who works it all out. Let me pray. God, I thank you for Daniel. God, I don't know that under these rough circumstances, I could have made more than maybe one of these. Much less three, four, five, six, seven of just being in just awful places. But this constant faithfulness, God, is it's assuring. And God, I'm mindful of your son, Jesus who had everything and with humility sacrificed it all to be here with us and to sacrifice his life so that we might have life with you forever. And so God, I pray that same humility, that same sacrifice, that we would do and be who you have called us to be, to lay our lives down for you, to lay our lives down for one another to love you with our whole hearts, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That we would give up arrogance and pride and trust in you, the rewarder of the faithful. And again, we are so thankful for your son and it's in his name that we pray, amen.